Hello, Radioland, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported Los Angeles Review of Books. On today's show, we'll hear conversations with Rain Wilson, Dwight from The Office. He's got a new book out called The Bassoon King. May Fong about her new work of nonfiction, One Child, the story of China's most radical experiment. Also this week, we talked to LARB editor Sarah Mesley about the new season of Game of Thrones. Joining me are my usual co-hosts. She is the former fiction editor of LARB. She is now a roving editor without portfolio or with every portfolio, however you want to look at it. Lori Weiner. Hello. Hi, Seth. Hi, 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 hi. And our co-host, he's the founding editor of LARP, the professor, Tom Lutz. Hello, Tom. The professor. This is our second show about the Los Angeles Times Festival of Books because the first one was so successful. And Lori, for people who don't know, what is the Los Angeles Times Book Festival? It was started by Steve Wasserman, who was the editor at the Los Angeles Times Book Review. And it started at UCLA. Now it's at USC. And people from all over come, book lovers, and there's tons of authors from all over the world and panels, and it's very exciting. Tom, what do you like best about the panels? I think one of the things I like about them, I guess, is that they're somewhat random. People get kind of thrown together and have a conversation. Yeah, give give and, an example of a typical panel title. Uh, the one I was on this year was called Fiction, The Road Home. And so the panel spent the first 10 minutes talking about what, what do we think this title means? Why do we think that we're on this panel? We don't know, but we all talked about what it might mean. And that turned out to be a, a kind of interesting, like a Rorschach test that just asks you to, to free associate about the title itself. And the room was packed. and uh, They're always packed. And it's a festive environment, which I think is why they call it a festival. Why don't we listen to one of the interviews we did? We're continuing our alfresco adventures at the book festival with Rain Wilson, who's here to talk about his new book, The Bassoon King. Welcome to the show. Thanks. What does alfresco mean? I don't speak Italian. Alfresco means uh, extra crispy, right, Laurie? Yes, it's uh, very, it very crispy. On, on the lawn. <laughs> I love the title, The Bassoon King. For the listeners who haven't read the book, why, why is it called The Bassoon King? Uh, I played the bassoon when I was in high school. I played for six years. And uh, I was really, uh, my geekiness really informed who I am and who I was and what my journey was. So it's really about being kind of king of the oddballs and then playing Dwight, ultimately, who is one of the king of the oddballs. Do you, have you ridden the wave of the chicness of oddballness now? Because as I think you say, when we were growing, when well, I'm older than you are, but but when we were all growing up, it wasn't as chic to be a nerd as it is now. Now it's the thing to be because yes. knowledge is now considered a val a good a good value, right? And um, but you you really, I think you've been a pioneer. I think I, when when I first got well known as Dwight, let's say in 2005 or 2006, let's say that was really at the cusp of like nerds starting to really take their own. You know, Beck was a rock star. And, you know, back when I was growing up, when we were growing up, uh, I don't want to date you guys. Um, but, uh, yeah, we uh, geeks were the bottom of the food chain. And, uh, but I, I'm proud of that because, you know, in reading science fiction books and playing Dungeons and & Dragons and being on the chess team, 
Um, and reading a ton uh, really informed my adult life. And now that is kind of cool. Like, when you say reading a ton as a kid, what, what were the, the books that informed your literary sensibility? Because your book is a real book. It's not, it's not a celebrity thing. No. It's an actual book. Thanks. Um, it looks great on a shelf, too. <laughs> um, the, uh, well, I started out reading, uh, in fact, I was just talking to my son about it this morning. I started out reading Ray Bradbury. So I read science fiction short stories um, that really blew my mind. I had no idea that imagination could run that deep. And then I went deep, a deep dive away from comic books into fantasy and science fiction. And I have a huge collection of fantasy and science fiction books. And, uh, and then I started getting a little more into literature and finding ways that, oh, literature can do the same thing. It'll blow your mind in using language, let's say, and character. So then getting into Kafka and Camus and some surrealist writers and stuff like that, going into college. Um, and then that's when I discovered acting. So then I went off on that tangent. Did what, you? What, what was the connection between literature and acting? Was there, was there a segue from one to the other? Or was it just, oh, that's over there, and now I'm interested in that? Well, it all started happening at the same time. I started reading more literature and started reading more plays and then acting in plays and kind of seeing the links between, you know... You read a book by Camus, and then you do a play by Samuel Beckett, and you see that there's some interaction and interplay between the two. And in terms of the 20th century, you read James Joyce, and and uh, then you do you know plays that have a heightened language uh, of Irish playwrights, let's say, and you see it all starts to it cross pollinates. I was really into poetry at the time as well, and you know, of course, theater is just a different kind of poetry. Uh, theatrical dramatic poetry so I had this theory which I just made up and it's kind of bullshit but uh, it's about the difference between being an actor and a writer I've never been an actor I've only been a writer and I'm totally making this up but it seems to me that uh, that writers are constantly analyzing and that for an actor to overanalyze can sometimes be a danger and to see the large perspective because you have to believe so deeply in your character and what your character needs or believes that to Empathize with another character in the play might be to your detriment as an actor. And have you found that it's different parts of the brain that you use? You're right. That theory is bullshit. <laughs> I, Next, I, no, I, I'm, I'm teasing. Uh, we're, we're sorry for Laura. The, no, no, no. Of course. Yeah, I think there's a lot of validity to that. I think you, uh, when you direct or when you write, you're kind of taking a step back and you have this universe that you want to create and you want to use all these different tools of language or visual mediums to tell a story. And when you're an actor, it's just about getting your talons into the emotional guts of that person and who gives a fuck about the analysis of the other person uh, you know, of the overarching structure or anything like that. You've just got to, it's much more instinctual and you, and it's, it's about that deep dive into a character. No, being an actor, of course, is so much about taking a direction from directors, from other annoying actors who mm -hmm. might have tips on how you could improve what you're doing. Did any of that inform your desire to, to move into writing where you could be the ringmaster of your own universe? Yeah, I think I started uh, getting interested in writing about 10 years ago. I really didn't think that I could do it, and then I started writing it and found, like, oh, look, I can kind of do this. And I enjoyed it more and more. I kind of enjoyed the acting less and less. I kind of enjoyed, you know, just always being the narcissistic center of attention and uh, just all the BS of trying to get jobs and stuff like that 
where as a writer you have much more artistic control and sometimes I just want to be in my office and I just want to make things and I don't want to have to schmooze or shake hands or audition or please people or make them laugh. I just can be in my sweatpants, unshowered, with a cup of cold, bitter coffee and trying to create a world using language. So I've really enjoyed the process. Given that you're somebody who thinks about these things, these are deep things, and you had a, a career as, as a, an artist prior to doing The Office, and then you get identified with Dwight Schrute mm -hmm. in, in a very, very successful show. Mm -hmm. How do you process that? Because you're, you're not a television actor per se. You do a lot of different things. And now people out there, millions of people, identify you as this guy. Yeah, it's an interesting... Uh, first of all, Dwight has been amazing. I love the role. The TV show is great. I'm proud to be associated with it. But it's also an interesting challenge because everyone... Everywhere I go, people are like, Dwight, it's Dwight. <laughs> and so I'm known as Dwight. So, you know, I was acting for 15 years before I did Dwight and did 100 different roles before I did Dwight. And I'll do 100 different roles after I'm done with Dwight. But it's just an interesting challenge. But at the same time, Dwight has opened so many doors. I wouldn't be sitting here with you guys and have published a book if I hadn't gotten to play him. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. All right, the book is The Bassoon King. Rain Wilson, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks Thank for having so me, you guys. This has been fun. If you did not get your fill of Rain Wilson, go to lareerbooks.org. Click on the link. There is video of our conversation with him. This is Seth Greenland. I'm here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner on KPFK 90.7 FM, the LA Review of Books radio hour. We are here at the Los Angeles Times Festival of Books conducting a series of fascinating interviews. Our outdoor theme show is continuing. May Fong is here. You have written a book called One Child, the story of China's most radical experiment. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. What's that about? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's a good title. Take Very a guess. straightforward. <laughs> well, actually, I was going to call it Gray Emperors at a time, and it got completely rubbished by all my friends. They're like, what are you talking about? Are you writing a book about butterflies or something? Mm. What is this? So I said, okay, okay, One Child. One Child. One child. That's exactly yeah. what it's going to be about. It's a good title. Now, now the One Child policy um, is an, a kind of awesome level of social engineering, unknown in, in the annals of mankind. Yeah, never um, happened. Right? And observed in the breach, that is, there was a, there were a lot of uh, people in a lot of parts of China that were not paying any attention to it. Isn't that true? Well, yeah. The thing is, we call it One Child, uh, and it's actually not a great name for it, but it's the most commonly used name. And it basically describes a set of reproduction rules. Only about a third of all Chinese households are actually strictly bound to the one-child rule. Uh, there are exceptions. It's like the U.S. tax code. You could maybe have a second child if you worked in a dangerous profession. Let's say if you're a coal miner or a fisherman or if you... Um, say, had your first child and it was a girl and you live in the countryside, they mm -hmm. maybe let you try again for that boy that you mm -hmm. really want. Or let's say you could pay. You pay, um, you, you can have a second child or a third child. So some of China's richest people have more than one child now. How much approximately would it cost to have a second child? Well, this is the problem. You don't really know. It's a multiple of your household income, anywhere between two to ten times your household income. And the family planning officials have a huge amount of discretion in determining that. So someone like Zhang Yimo, who is a famous Chinese director, and he had multiple children, he's had to pay over a million dollars in fines 
What year was that policy put in place? 1980. So, you know, we're talking uh, 35, 36 years that this thing has been around mm -hmm. for. Is that, were you, when were you born? I was born in 1972, so oh. I'm older. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but all, and also not in China, right? In and Malaysia. not in China. I was a th um, third generation Chinese. And, you know, the joke is overseas Chinese people are actually much more traditional. We hold to the old ways more because mm -hmm. we didn't have things like the Cultural Revolution to strip aside all that. So I am the fifth girl in a family, and my father is the 16th son. So uh, I was a big disappointment. All of us were because we were girls. And yeah. one of the first, my introduction to the one-child policy was all the relatives saying, you lucky, you're not born in China. You wouldn't be born. You'd be in the Willichville. You'd be given away. Yeah. It's because one of the problems of the one-child policy is that um, it, it, it came about in a country that had a long-stated uh, preference for boys. So when you force families to choose and limit their choices, many people chose sons. You know, so and the problem is now China has 30 million more men than women, bachelors, you know, that's the size of Canada. Yeah. <laughs> I, what was it like to be a little girl and be told that? Like, what, how did you? Well, definitely your sense of valuation is, is very involved. And, you know, my father is not a peasant farmer. He was a educated man, but he still had these thinking and he was an accountant. So he would tell us as daughters, he would say, you girls, you are liabilities. You're not assets, you know. Mm. And, of course, for me, what it did was it made me say, I'll show them. I'll show them. I'll show yeah. them good. <laughs> and, you, and you did. <laughs> so what is, the, what is it like for the, for the men who, who are having such difficulty finding brides? What, what do they do? Well, the problem is a, a large proportion of these 30 million men, and they're called guangkong, you know, which means bare branches. You know, they're reproductive ends of their family tree. Mm -hmm. um, and the problem is most of these are men in the countryside. They're the ones who find it harder to attract uh, women because women don't want to be in a countryside if they don't have a choice. I want to live in a city, right? I want um, shopping. I want lipstick. I don't want to live in the countryside. I visited a bachelor village, you know, a place where there are uh, no marriageable women. So I thought before I went, I was like, what is it going to be like? Is it going to be full of lonely frustrated, angry men. Is this going to be physically a dangerous thing? Mm. Um, but what I discovered was the problem, a village in China that's a, a bachelor village, it's like any other village in China, which is to say it's mostly full of old people and children. You can't make a living on a farm. So the guys have to go out, they have to work in a countryside. But they do come back because they stand to inherit. The women just go and they don't come back. Mm. So then the problem becomes the men become very lonely. So actually suicide rates for men in China and the countryside are on the rise. Mm. And that's, that's a new phenomenon. Mm. What about the women who mm -hmm. live in the cities? Um, is it, has it been empowering at all for them because they get to choose? I mean, it's supply and demand. Well, theoretically, you argue to yourself, right, if there's a shortage of women, shouldn't women have the upper hand? Um, and the answer is Unfortunately, no. So mm -hmm. to one extent, the one-child policy has been good for a certain class of women, which is to say urban women born after the 1980. You have no siblings, you get all your parental resources. So women went in greater numbers to university, higher degrees, but there's a rising backlash now because the problem is the reason why the Chinese government has reversed this one-child policy is because it's biting them in the... Posterior. <laughs> yes, the posterior. Because um, they need more people now, not less. You know, you're going to have an aging population. You don't have enough young workers. The target demographic they want to get married and produce more of these babies is educated urban women. But mm -hmm. educated urban women are, like in China, as everywhere else, they're putting off marriage, they're getting married later, yeah. having all these issues. So now there's a big campaign to label these women as mm -hmm. leftovers. 
you know, like doggy right, bags, right, right. leftovers. Um, and you are considered a leftover woman starting from the age of 25, wow. mm-hmm. which is pretty young, especially yeah. when you consider the legal age for marriage in China is 20. So you go from go to game over in five years. <laughs> I think that's fair. Um, what about the millions of women who gave up their baby girls? Um, is that like the guilt uh, and heartbreak of that? Is that something that's... Yes, I talk about that because here's the thing. This is one of the things that touches upon America the most. 120,000 uh, children were adopted from China so from the one-child policy. Most of them were girls. 80% of them are in American households. I bet you all know somebody yes. who adopted yes. somebody from China. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, um, you know, um, and this has contributed to a huge amount of heartbreak. I mean, the story has always been these girls were abandoned. But, of course, there were huge reasons why they were abandoned. They were forced to. Not everybody mm-hmm. wanted to do it. You know, the, the, a certain element of coercion was going on, too. And for a lot of women who gave birth to these children, it was huge. So here's the other statistic that's interesting. For a long time, China was very unusual among all other countries in the world because suicide rates typically in other parts of the world are higher for men than women, because men are violent creatures, and they tend to kill themselves to a greater degree than women. Men suck. Yes, but for a long time, China was unusual, because a huge number, more women killed themselves than men, and most of these were rural women, women in the countryside, and part of the reason was because of the burden of the one-child policy. You are expected to produce a son, huge pressure if you don't produce a son, you have all these societal pressures, and maybe if you produce a daughter or two, you're expected to give her up, or, or infanticide, mm-hmm. or abort. Yeah. What's the policy today? So the policy today is they've gone and announced late last year that they're switching to a two-child policy. But there are still rules governing that. It's not a free-for-all. You are required to get birth permits. And so my expectation is the end of the line, they will drop uh, more requirements as they go along. Because the problem is uh, they have been sort of tinkering with it and sort of releasing it slowly and trying to get people to have more children. But a lot of people do not want to have children. And this is, um, you know, the one-child policy is an, almost a victim of its own success. You spent 35 years telling people that the one-child family is the ideal. Some of it's got to stick. Mm-hmm. Can we go back to Malaysia for a minute? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I don't get Kuala Lumpur. I, I, what is it you don't get about I don't, it? I don't know. I just I drop into I drop into a lot of uh, <laughs> cities, and I can and I can find my way around, and I can get a sense of the place, and I just can't get a sense of Kuala Lumpur. I don't Actually, know I think why. KL is very much like L.A. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's very spread out. Suburbia, mm-hmm. it's spread out. You got to drive anywhere, mm-hmm. but you'd be surprised. I mean, you know, here's the thing: most Malaysians have grown up in a diet of America. You know, how do you suppose I spoke uh, English? Mm-hmm. I, I grew up not from learning it in school. I learned it from watching America. You know, I was watching Aaron Spelling, Love Boat, Six Million Dollar Man. This is where my English comes from. Uh-huh. How could you not feel at home? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Would you like to sing the theme from The Love Boat? Yes, I know that one. <laughs> love exciting and new. Come aboard, we're expecting you. I bet you didn't know I knew all that, right? <laughs> Very impressive. You're now officially our favorite Very guest. Very well done. <laughs> the book is One Child. Mei Fong, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Oh, it was great. If you want to hear more of our conversation with Mei Fong, go to lareviewbooks.org. There is a link to a video of uh, her talking about One Child, the story of China's most radical experiment. This is Seth Greenland. I'm here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, 90.7 KPFK-FM.
Uh, so we have a bonus segment. Tom Lutz and Seth Greenland are not here. It's just me, Lori Weiner, and my special, special guest. We have Sarah Mesley here. Sarah is the senior humanities editor uh, at LARB, Oh, the Humanity. And yeah. she is also one of the authors of the great Dear Television column for LARB. And she's a fan of Game of Thrones. And I'm, welcome, Sarah. Thank you, Lori. And I should say off the top that I have never seen it. That's so great. this is going to be a really one-sided interview, but I do have questions about it. Starting on Sunday, Start, it's the yes. sixth season. Is the that sixth season. Are you excited about this season? Is this the last season? Okay, so Lori, yes. I predicted that that would be your first question. I've been... You are ruminating over how to answer. Like, what is the the feeling that I have? It is not excitement. Okay. The best I've come is like concern. Like, I have concerns. Like, I'm not bored. I'm Uh very interested. You know, it was interesting. I was just going back and rereading some of the things I wrote about last season, which started off fantastic and really went off the rails mid-season um, to the extent that I stopped writing about it. It just didn't seem fun to say like, oh, here's some more like narrative bungling and marital rape. Like that is only so many times you can make that criticism of sure. a show that it relies too much on marital, you know, narrative bungling and marital rape. Well, I've, mm. I've heard tell about this marital rape, marital in, rape. Um, in, in the show. And as you have written, that can be a way of exploring powerlessness in a society. Uh, do all of the rapes do that? <laughs> so and how rapes? many rapes Which are there? to choose from? I just want to kind of pause and note how happy I am that it's just you and I talking oh, about it, this. Yeah. I really feel like some good lady meeting of the mind is really what Game of Thrones needs. Like the, all those dudes who are making this show need to like like sit down for a minute and like have like a lady consult. Are I there, like are there any ladies of making the show? I'm sure there are many ladies, uh, writers? but not prominently displayed. Mm-hmm. Um, I will pause and say that there is a lady who's in charge of costuming. And actually some of those costumes are just going to be on display at UCLA. And they are stories in themselves. They are so... I, it's sometimes it's hard to talk about the plot of the show because the costumes are so narratively interesting. Um, the The material culture of the show is so great. Well, let me ask you about the fantasy genre. Like, yeah. uh, I have some um, resistance to it. Uh, part of the reason is because the rules of the universe are made up and can change conveniently, it seems to me. I'm not talking about Game of Thrones Mm because I haven't seen it, but I'm wondering. Right. Well, when one evaluates a fantasy novel, talking about its world making and the consistency of its world making is like one of the basic criteria, like how good is the world building and some not so much and some others. What's interesting, and this is kind of a classic point about Game of Thrones, is that it's basically the opposite narrative of Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings is about a world where magic is leaving and the rule of men is coming to be with a kind of ordered realism. And Game of Thrones is about a world that had been in that the time of men, and magic is coming back in. So to answer your main question, 
very rarely does it take the easy way out, narratively speaking. Except, and this goes back to your earlier point, um, it does rely too much on the kind of spectacle of women's suffering to generate feeling rather than complicated story making. The rule of man is passing and magic is coming in, you said. Yes. Basically, what, what, why is that happening? That is the great question of the show. Um, nobody in the show knows the answer to that question. Only some people know that it is happening. One of the things that's interesting right now about watching the show is uh, the question of if this show is like a very long movie. It's one story moving to one particular end. And if that's the case, the question of why this magic is coming back and what it means for who will rule Westeros, this combination of kingdoms, is the question, right? Somehow we will find that out and the show will be over and we'll be like, oh my God, that's amazing. <laughs> the White Walkers and, they, and the dragons. Um, so there's a lot of speculation, like, is it going to end with the dragons and their fire and then these, like, magical ice people hovering at the end of a plot meeting together in some spectacular display? Or, on the other hand, is it just about HBO now spooling this out as long as they can mm -hmm. um, to make as much money for as long as they can after what's still the biggest show on television? And it's not actually about anything anymore. It's not working towards an endpoint except its own kind of constant unspooling. Does the audience include, does it include people who just read fantasy and then people who really know a lot about history? I mean... No, I mean, it's. I think it's the biggest show on one of them it's it's like certainly the biggest industry going right now in television it is not niche in any way and and those other shows that were industry that that uh that ran out after five or six seasons like you know the sopranos or breaking bad or whatever and there was a sense of artistic you know of, of the people who were creating it could not go on they really felt like the story was was winding up and they, they just yeah. had they didn't have any more story in them but this you're suggesting goes beyond do we know what the two r's stand for by the way oh i don't yeah. i enjoy not knowing oh, i think yeah, it's, it's like a... robert and reginald it's like something normal and something oh. kind of bullshitty uh, i don't know okay but but it's gone beyond him and yeah. whatever his okay. needs so are. this is the big um like kind of geeky excitement of this moment is that uh the shows had been based on these novels and starting at the very end of, well, starting at the very end of last season, they surpassed the novels. So, which is the urtext? Mm -hmm. Which is the one that matters most? So it's the first time that these showmakers really have control. So if they have four more seasons in them, you know, yeah. What do you bless. got? What do you got, guys? What do you got? Let's it's see. So, so in that way, I'm I'm excited. I'm a little nervous. Are, is it frustrating to talk to someone who has never seen the show? No. Okay. No, no, no. Well, thank you so much You're for welcome. coming, and will you come back and talk to us again later in the season? I would love to. Thanks to Sarah Mesley, May Fong, Rain Wilson. Thanks to our producer and moral conscience, Jerry Gorin, our crack production assistant, Ernesto Oraliano, 
czar of scheduling, Aviva de Kornfeld, and associate producer, Jim Lane. Find us on the web at lareviewofbooks.org. Download us on iTunes or wherever podcasts are available. Follow us on Twitter, should you be moved to do so. For Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner, this is Seth Greenland. Thanks for listening.